Hello and welcome back. It's your host of JavaScript Jabber, Solder JS. This week on the show, we have the illustrious, magnificent, intelligent, creative genius, Michael Rogers. Hey. <laughs> How's everybody doing? We also have Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. Just Nashville, or was it the uh, what's it hole? The what? <laughs> mm, bad joke. Chris Ferdinandi, the Vanilla JS guy. Hey, hey, it's Mr. Solder JS over here. Oh, I mean, um, Mr. Vanilla JS. <laughs> and our actual should be host, Charles Maxwood. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> the devchat.tv guy. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash jsjabber. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Chris, real quick question. Have you always been doing Vanilla.js? Did you like start that project? And so I actually have nothing to do with Vanilla-js.com and that site infuriates me okay. um, to no end. But I have been really, really focused on Vanilla.js for like five years now. And I just, I use the term because it's what everybody else does. So from a marketing oh, perspective, okay. it makes sense. But I have very slowly and deliberately associated myself with that term to the point that, yeah, people sometimes think that site is me, but... It's a little bit too serious. And so I get like beginners are constantly like, how do I download this thing? There's no instructions on the site. And, you know, like it causes more confusion than like, so people who've been around the block a few times think it's hilarious, but like, I hate the effect that it has on beginners. That's funny. So I was actually just going to apologize because I, I accidentally overwrote that package one time. Um, <laughs> I was, I had, I'd written a joke package called Vanilla and uh, that one was already published and I published and, and it worked. And I was like, oh, I guess there's not a, package there because I didn't actually check. Um, and this, this was like, this was a while back. And um, I wrote the original uh, NPM registry. So I had admin in that couch TV. And so I could just overwrite, I didn't know that I would just like overwrite people's packages if it didn't, um, if, it, if I like didn't actually manually check. So um, yeah, somebody, more you know. yeah, yeah. The person got really mad and I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I, I did not mean to do that. And we put it back together, but yeah, those were like the, the old days of NPM before there was like a real company and things around it. So, <laughs> so everybody knows who Chris Ferdinandi is, but I, Michael's a little less known. So Michael, why don't you introduce yourself for, you know, the people that have never heard of JavaScript, for example. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I'm Michael Rogers. I started to get involved with Node really, really early on, like the first week that it was released. Um, did a bunch of sort of Node core stuff, not a ton, but like a, a lot of stuff around streams and the HTTP API. I wrote Request, which was one of the first libraries. I helped write um, the original registry for NPM, did a lot of stuff around there. Worked, worked on also like a lot of sort of CouchDB related stuff. I wrote, I created the PouchDB project a long time ago as well. And then, yeah, I did the first series of conferences, uh, NodeConf around 
Node.js, um, when IOJS happened, I was like involved in that. Uh, and then when the foundation happened, I um, actually ran the foundation for the first couple of years, the Node.js foundation, which recently just became the OpenJS foundation. They merged. So yeah, that's sort of my history around Node and JavaScript and things like that. Awesome. Boy, that brings back some memories. <laughs> some of that stuff. <laughs> it's a good time. <laughs> So Chuck, since you're on the show now, I'm going to let you go ahead and take the lead with the question asking again, all right? Yeah, well, I set this up because I kind of wanted to sprinkle in some beginner content and I was thinking, oh, well, let's, you know, let's talk about Node basics. And of course, when I think of Node, I think of Michael. So I thought, okay, well, we'll have Michael come on and talk to us a little bit about Node basics and, you know, just we, we can kind of get some ideas as far as like, what Node is and how people are using it and all of that good stuff. So, yeah, do you want to just give us a brief intro, Michael, as to what Node is and how people are using it and and how people could get started with it if they're not as familiar with it? Sure, sure. Um, I mean, I, I think with Node, it's important to remember what JavaScript was like 10 years ago, which was when Node started, and what it's like today and how those are very different. And, and also, I think the original conception of what Node would do is not necessarily what people are using it for now. So there's some mismatches right. there, right? So like Node was started before we had async await, before promises were standardized. It actually originally shipped with a version of promises that was like not like any spec that anybody's ever done. They were awful. Um, and so those got backed out and it, so it, it took on this sort of callback API. There was no binary type, like, like a reliable one in JavaScript yet. So we had to invent one. You know, the, the st- a streaming interface um, didn't exist. Generators didn't exist. Not, not async generators, just no generators at all in the language didn't exist. So a lot of um, what Node has inside of its kind of core primitives are these things that were created before JavaScript as a language and as a platform had kind of caught up. When you look today at what JavaScript is like, and, and Node now takes a version of V8 with all of those features, there's some big mismatches between the way that Node core works and the way that you're probably going to want to use Node and the way that people in sort of modern JavaScript use Node um, for both front-end and for back-end, right? So I, I think that there's a lot of newer tutorials and newer libraries that you need to look at. And you know the number of dependencies or stars or history in a library these kinds of like quality things that you look for in other languages might not actually apply in Node.js right now. Regarding that, I got a question for you. So mm-hmm. I think of requests as being one of the things that when they show the, the black hole diagram with NPM, like request is almost at the center of that density. Do you still feel like request serves its purpose well, or is there something that's smaller, lighter that would be better or what like, because it's 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 grown to be huge. So we actually just announced that we're we're kind of deprecating request. <laughs> um, so uh, I would say like no, it it's not. So to to back up a little bit, the, the yeah, let's back up and, yeah. and talk about like why it was there in the first place because it has been right. valuable over the years. Oh yeah, yeah, for, for sure. So I mean, Node.js was released at a conference called JSConfigU that my my friend Jan ran, and. After that conference, he said, oh, hey, has anybody written an HTTP proxy in this yet? And so, and nobody had. And like, that was how I learned Node and got into Node, actually. It was like that weekend I, I wrote an HTTP proxy. Um, and it was like faster than the proxy that I'd worked on for five years in, in Python. So I was like, huh, maybe, oh, wow. I should move, maybe I should move to this thing. <laughs> it's, it's, doing, it's doing the things that I need it to do a little bit better than Python. So maybe I should migrate. Anyway. And so that, like getting involved in sort of the HTTP layer was like the first thing that I did. And, and, um, 
using node cores HTTP client was like not very fun. And so the first sort of reusable library that I wrote was an HTTP client. This was before NPM even existed. So this was like a thing that I was just like pushing on GitHub um, and people would just have to download that whole repository if they wanted to use it. As Node evolved, yeah, as Node evolved and took and like standardized its APIs, request was driving a lot of that alignment and then adopting it immediately. So if you look at like all of the really early commits inside of request, you see that it's just evolving along with Node, and and even Node itself is sort of taking on changes. So um, when streams sort of get standardized, that cuts down a lot on the code. Um, when we introduce this sort of agent like um, API inside of Node Core, which is how you manage the connection pooling in HTTP in HTTP Keep Alive, that was like exposed in a way that requests could then adopt it and use it. One of my, my favorite contribution that I ever made to Node Core is actually a one-line commit in the stream interface where um, streams have a pipe method, but uh, so um, a source always knows about its destination because it, it's a method that hangs off of it, but a destination didn't know about its source. So I added this event where when you pipe, it will actually like call an event with the source on the destination so that you know about your input and output. That's what enables enabled the request one-line HTTP proxy, right? Like that's exactly like, like, like uh, the request, like the smart proxying that happens inside of request that, that was added into the platform so that we could do that in request and then request evolved along with that. So, and, and <laughs> when you look through request code, there's a lot of code in there to handle ancient APIs inside of Node. And then I ended up doing a huge rewrite of the HTTP client at one point, one of the many rewrites of the HTTP client in core, I should mention. A lot of people have done this. This is not like, I'm not the only person that's rewritten most of HTTP. Anyway, uh, so request like really drove Node and Node drove request. And, and that's why it was um, such a popular li- library early on. It was showing you know, what Node could do at the time. Um, and a lot of people that were doing you know, even basic examples on stuff like Stack Overflow using the HTTP client, um, they would use request. So it's now one of the most depended on projects like in the Node ecosystem, right? Like most backend projects rely on it. I think NPM still relies on it. I think they, they want to ditch it at some point, but the, the problem is that there's just not good enough proxying support in other libraries yet. So it, it has become like this, this really kind of core project. At the same time, it has been really hard to keep maintenance and contributions coming into it. Like I've struggled to keep up with with the pull requests that are coming in. We've onboarded several uh, contributors, some like really great contributors now that are doing you know amazing stuff. Um, like it, like uh, uh, Fred Schott who works on Pika, for instance. And Pika is like an amazing project that I, that I'm following really closely. He early on did a lot of like cool request stuff as well. So it's been a great project. I've met a lot of really great people. Um, but especially lately, it's really, really struggled. And as you look at the changes that have happened in the language, taking on promises, for instance, um, introduced like some really problematic challenges for request updating its API. We were really like request is stretching the inferences that you can make from taking in callbacks and returning streams and stuff like that. So it's just not, it hasn't been able to keep up with the language and the platform. Um, and we haven't really been able to keep up with maintaining it all that well. And we kept having all these ideas for like, what will the next big version of request look like and blah, blah, blah. And in the meantime, like other people have done better stuff. And even I wrote a, a different library that I kind of like better um, for these new patterns as well. And so we, I kind of decided one day that the right thing to do was actually not to do a big new version. The right thing to do was to deprecate the project. Because if we, if we just try to take all of that market share and 
and sort of brand awareness around request and roll it into the next version. We're definitely going to get more users than any other new HTTP client, but we're probably not actually going to be better. We're going to be straddling this line between all of the old stuff and all of the new stuff. And I think that it's better to make a clean break, actually. And the best way that we could make room for a better library and for a clean break was actually to just slowly deprecate. So you know, we're putting it into maintenance mode for a year, and then we might do something um, that actually does deprecation warnings within a year or so. Um, so that's sort of the story there. And um, so back at the beginning of that, mm-hmm. you said something that was really interesting was was that you were doing something in Python and you found Node to be a better tool. And I think maybe that would actually be a good segue into. Can I can I, I jump in for a second though? Because I know a lot of folks they get in using this language or that system or what have you, and so they may not know what streams are because you, you've okay. mentioned streams a few times. So do you okay. want to just cover that really quickly and then we can... Uh... Sure, sure. So streams are, are primitive inside of Node.js. Um, there's also, um, confusingly, a standard for a thing called the stream in the browser now. And a couple newer APIs have taken on that as well. A stream is basically an object that represents something that is going to hand you chunks of data. Like it's going to give you multiple parts of data over time. And, and these are really important to use in a way where you're taking streams and sort of stacking them together and sending them together. Because what will happen is that like you will do, um, let's say like you want to serve a file and that file is like a gigabyte <laughs> and you serve it to a mobile phone. <laughs> uh, that mobile phone is not going to be able to take a gigabyte of data as quick as you can read it off of disk, right? And so what you want to do is you want to connect sort of this, the outbound socket to this, this inbound reader. And if you make that connection, if you have like in the language or in the primitives, sort of some kind of fabric tying all of like these this source and destination together, then when the client can't take any more data, you actually just stop reading, right? And you pause it and then you start iterating. You can iteratively pull data in just as quick as it's reading it. Other languages that that don't have these primitives or just don't do as good of a job with kind of non-blocking interfaces, what ends up happening is that now that whole file just comes into memory and you're just sitting there like on that memory waiting for the client to be able to take it. And it really limits your ability for one process to deal with like multiple different clients. And it, it's just this explosion of memory usage. So no matter which way you slice it, it's, it's not a great pattern um, if you don't have something like that. In the language now, we have this thing called uh, async generators. Async generators are much more of like a language level primitive for dealing with and manipulating data, like iterative data in this way. And if you look at the, the new browser stream APIs, they actually have async generators attached to them. So you can use them like an async generator. And even in Node Core today, and I think as of Node 10, they attached an async generator to core streams. So that is not every stream that you get in the Node ecosystem. If you pull them out of NPM, sometimes these won't be attached. But all the streams that are out of core or subclasses of core streams, uh, you can use them as async generators. So you can use the, the for await uh, you know, let X of blah syntax and, and iterate over them that way. So that's uh, that's what a stream is. Makes sense so, to me. And yeah, and to, and to go back to, to to AJ's point about Python. So at the time, what I was doing with Python was you know writing proxies and dealing with a lot of like iterative data. I was also um, I was at Mozilla at the time, and I I had built this tool to sort of tear apart the platform and be able to test it and, and pull it all the UI components. It, Similar to kind of what Selenium does, we use Selenium, but it also worked on all of the, the Chrome, so all the buttons inside of the platform. Mm-hmm. And then, but you needed a platform language to launch the browser to get test results back into the platform language, all that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of this like event system stuff that was happening over in like a non blocking 
uh, browser in JavaScript APIs that I then had to hand off to these like blocking interfaces on the Python side. And I've at a certain point in time at at that time I had used all of the libraries that they had for doing non-blocking and non-blocking in APIs in, in Python suffered from this problem that the entire Python ecosystem was built on the standard lib blocking APIs. And if you used a non-blocking API, you were like often this, you know, sub, sub, sub ecosystem of people that have just been doing that. So one of the, the benefits of Node at the even, you know, in the first week that it was released, was you could see, okay, one, these non-blocking interfaces work really well and they're very fast. Um, two, the the V8 VM at that time was like so much faster than Python. I mean, now it's even faster, much, much faster than Python. Python has not gotten much faster um, in the intervening 10 years, and, and V8 has gotten significantly better. Just performance in, in VMs and JavaScript is unbelievable. But most importantly, I, I could see that as an ecosystem spread it up, and we started, like, you know, I didn't know that NPM would happen, but you, would, you could see that there would be something like NPM, and people would be writing these libraries, and those libraries would be on top of these non-blocking interfaces rather than the blocking interfaces in Python. So there was just, like, all of the growth and potential you could kind of see there if you were looking at it from the perspective that I had in 2009. So what are some of the things that you think... So speed is obviously one. I, I feel like performance is a, is a really great reason to use Node for... If your alternatives were something like Python or Ruby, I feel like Node is, is good in terms of performance. So one, I want to know if you if you feel like that's fairly accurate. And two... What about for learning or creating your first type of program on your own? Is is Node good for that, or is it more challenging? Do you think? Um. So yeah, th- this is where my perspective has definitely changed over time, um, and especially the years that I was running the, the Node.js Foundation, I got a much kind of bigger picture view of what people were doing with Node and where the growth was and how the community was growing. To give to give you some perspective, you know, at that time we had. Um, I think like between two and four million users when we were starting the foundation, but we were we had one hundred percent growth a year, and we had no reason to think that it was slowing down so we we were predicting these numbers that people thought were outrageous, but all came true basically now now notice is definitely the largest programming platform in the world it, it beats every other programming platform, including Java, which was the was holding that record for quite a while, up until just a few years ago. More developers use it every day. In fact, we're we're starting to reach the point where more developers use Node.js every day than you actually get in in world statistics for how many developers there are. Because the the reality is, um, those statistics look at people who, as a profession, are doing software development. And the web, and and Node is now like a part of the web, uh, just touches more people than you classify as engineers and developers. Like a lot of people build websites that actually have a career doing something completely differently. So yeah, anyway, I think that the best way to build a new application is to use the web. I think that you should build a web application. I think that you should use... And, and in building a web application, you're going to use JavaScript. Um, and Node is like a part of that equation. So if you're using you know, React or Vue.js, all of the compilers and the tool chains and everything are written in Node. And it helps you to know a little bit about how Node works in, if you want to interface with those tools, deal with plugins, stuff like that. No, knowing the differences between Node as a platform language and the browser JavaScript environment is, is a good way to learn that. Also, you may have back-end needs. You may have things that don't only work in the front end. And it's great to not be switching to another language, for one thing, when you have to write those. 
And two, there's just there's more opportunities in different service providers to use Node than any other language. Every function as a service offering in the world supports Node right now. Um, and other languages are are supported in some people's offerings and some not. Node's performance characteristics on serverless are nice. Node is always optimized for startup time. We've always viewed that like the longer your startup time, the longer it takes for a developer to sort of see their work. So that's always been an important kind of performance indicator for Node. And um, that startup performance time matters a lot in, in services like Lambda and function, other functions and service stuff. Um, I see Amy has a question. Yeah, I have a bunch of questions, two that are appropriate for right now. So the first one is, so AJ asked about like Ruby and Python. Um, Those I think are more like beginner friendly languages. What about, I do feel like just from like personal experience with friends and stuff, um, like the Go community and Rust is starting to like steal away a little bit of usage from Node. I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on that in general. Like, do you agree? Do you think maybe some people are jumping the gun too much on things? So, so th- those are two really different questions. Uh, well, I'll answer them in reverse order, though. And, and I asked that, too, because, like, neither one of them were... I don't even know if Rust was around when I got into Node. Um, I think Go was. Rust, Go, Rust and Node. for a long time. Well, and I also... No, no, no. Know, like, like, they're very... They're, they're very different, but they can be used for the same thing too. So, okay. So, so first of all, um, so some people don't realize this. Node, Go, and Rust were all released within a year of each other. So they're okay. all about ten years old now. Rust, <laughs> Rust literally just yelled at people not to use it for the first five or six of those years. <laughs> they, they were. I do they, remember that. Yeah. We had a show on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They were very clear. Like we are still breaking things. Like just don't use this. Um, so it's a little unfair to sort of put them all next to each other. But Go has been trying to get developers to use it about as long as Node, and it has a nice growth curve compared to other platforms, but nothing compared to Node. It's hard to put this in, into terms that don't sound like you're you're trying to exaggerate, right? Node's growth is is not like any other platform language, like a language that you run on your computer. It is much slower than the growth of web development. Web development is is unbelievably fast and is still growing um, and is an unbelievable, just an unbelievable number of developers. But Node was really able to tap into that. And so it just, it has platform growth that is completely different than these other platforms. I, I used to spend a lot of time tracking these numbers. And one, one thing that is really interesting about the numbers of all these platform languages is that with the exception of Ruby, none of them have actually seen a decline in growth. All of them have been growing at a good, relatively stable rate. This idea that like people are moving from one language to another, it's really marginal. What the majority of growth in any programming language is, is new people adopting it. Because we're just making more developers than we have existing developers. Development is like a very, very fast-growing field, and the need for people to write code is, is just growing exponentially. So if you want to see you know, who is growing the most, it's really just who is capturing the most new growth. It's not so much who is you know, stealing developers from one community to another. Um, so if you look at Go's growth, that's relatively stable over this period. Rust growth is, is, is doing pretty well now. It's, it's like up um, and now sort of flattening. Like I said, Ruby actually did decline. It, I've, I've never seen that um, since, when, since I've been tracking these numbers. Python started to do a little bit better about five years ago than it had before, which is rare. Usually after you've been around for 10 years, your, your growth rate sort of stabilizes. And there's... Python 3 for the win! I, yeah. I, I got adopted! I don't think it was Python 3. I think that what actually happened was that 
So, so Python's been doing this, it's really a, a story of community work working out well. Python spent, no, not exaggerating, 10 years in the academic community trying to make headway, trying to get academics and universities to adopt it. And they put all this work into SciPy. And, and I, I know some of those people, they've done a tremendous job of doing community development in academia. And when ML started to, to come back and AI started to become a thing again, that started paying huge dividends. It was just an amazing language to do that in because they, had had, they already had this huge community writing all these algorithms and doing all this tooling work, and it just became a really good environment. Python as a language is not particularly well-suited to any of the problems in ML and AI, actually. Um, but they, they just have a great community for that. And it turns out that the community is actually kind of more important than having a language that is perfect for a task. Well, um, and everything's written in C and Python anyway. I mean, you're literally scripting <laughs> C. A lot of those ML libraries are like actually in Fortran and and then bound to with Python. Um, Some of like the the old, the the really, really old uh, scientific libraries. You know, these are people that wrote wrote their thesis around this algorithm and nobody's re-implemented it ever since. Like Python's the best way to write Fortran and C. That's what it seems like to me then. No. Yeah, yeah. I mean, by comparison, uh, Node is terrible to write C in. Uh, the, the binding layers are really expensive because a lot of C libraries that you tap into, not, not these algorithms, but a lot of other ones, are use blocking I.O. You just can't use them in Node. This is a huge problem in the first year of Node. You know, every other language that you look at, it's like their Postgres binding and their MySQL binding are all just the same oh, thing on top of a C so, library. And then but in JavaScript, like we had to write a Postgres adapter from scratch in native JavaScript. It took a while. But it's so much easier to get Node working. Like, try to install Python on something. Like, there's so many quirks. Like, if it comes in the package manager or whatever, fine. But if, yeah. like, Node, you can just unzip the folder, put it in a directory, and it works. And goes like that, too. Like, the other yeah. languages, yeah. not Ruby and, and Python, good night. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's two things that, that I think have done the most around Node's growth? Well, I guess three. So one is that early on, um, so 10 years ago, there was clearly going to be a need for a fast non-blocking language for backend. And Node kind of won that. And it, it won it because we were very fast and very good at that. And if you look at the, the first few years of Node, a lot of systems people were coming into it. Then what happened was, you know, then it was just the web. Like we, we ended up being the place where people wrote you know, compilers and all of these front-end tool chains. And that's just a much faster growth space than anywhere else in any other thing that, that languages do, at least. And the funny thing is that we, we like, it, uh, in the first NodeConf that I ever ran, what I, we asked the panel sort of like, so what should you not do in Node? And one of the things they said was, you shouldn't do things like scripting and compilers in Node. <laughs> and that ended up being like one of the biggest things that you do. Because it turns out that just being in JavaScript is, is actually more important there, where you're not kind of fracturing the community and being like, okay, well, let's write this in, in some other language and then, and then get JavaScript developers to use it. And then you have this really hard problem of uh, turning your users into maintainers and, and contributors to the project. It wrote on the coattails of jQuery, I would say, Say definitely. jQuery was right at its peak when Node was announced, and I think that had a huge boon to it. And mm-hmm. JavaScript had no standards. Like, there was nothing yeah. to agree or disagree with. You couldn't say, like, I like this style or I don't like this style, because it was completely Wild West. Everybody did everything whichever way they wanted without any cohesion. Underscores, camel case, snake case, like, yeah. everything was completely <laughs> bogus, whichever way that person wanted to write it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so when Node started, 
we thought that the language was just done. Like they had tried to do a new version of JavaScript called, um, was it ES4 or ES3? I think it was ES4. It was yeah. ES4. Yeah, it was ES4, yeah. It, and, and it was like this big overhaul of the language and all these features that are actually coming in now were supposed to be part of it. And it was, it was a colossal failure. Um, and it was completely backed out. And then ES5 uh, ended up just becoming like a small iteration with just some, <laughs> some really nice stuff, but just a very tiny iteration on the language. And so um, we saw this kind of, in, in the early Node community, we saw that as a benefit because if you look at like what's happening in Python, they're developing a language and an implementation of it as a platform. And there's always a tension between where, do you solve this in the language or do you solve it in the platform? And obviously language changes are going to take longer than platform changes. And so we felt like we, we had this opportunity where the language isn't changing. It's clear that we can't actually solve these problems in, in the language. And we should just focus all of our attention on fixing them now in the platform and creating good APIs around it. Of course, what ended up happening is that in the intervening 10 years, JavaScript as a language committee has actually gotten better at evolving the language than maybe any other language except C++. They have a staggering rate of achievement in not just adding things to the language, but not breaking the language, getting the language adopted. Now, pretty much every, except for Node, every dominant you know, platform that takes Node, every browser, auto-updates. And so that's just completely changed the dynamic of how quickly that you can upgrade the language and upgrade really just the whole web. So... You know, the platform is really caught up and a lot of the things that Node did that the, the platform didn't provide are now provided by the platform and there's this weird transition period that we're at where there's all this new stuff that you really should be using and it's a better, it's a, it's a better way to write code. Um, it's much simpler for everybody to use, but then there's all of this old kind of cruft around that even if you don't depend on it directly, ends up inside of your deep dependencies. And then those turn into bigger bundles and all that kind of stuff. Speaking yeah. of dependencies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to ask some questions. And I'm not making an opinion when I state this. I'm just asking questions. So I'm going to preface what, what I ask with that. I'm just curious. I feel like you have kind of mentioned this, I think. But for people who might not already be aware, like what is your opinion on alternate registries, alternate CLIs, stuff like that? So I've tried a lot of the alternate CLIs and I haven't had a lot of luck with them. Um, I think that th there was a period where NPM didn't seem to be releasing quite often enough, at least clients. That's over. They're, they're, they've done a lot of really good work and have been iterating quite a bit. So they have most of the features that people want now. I think my questions about NPM are much bigger um, looking into the, the future. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so it's important to think about like why NPM was so successful and and what it did differently than other package managers. So every decision in NPM is really optimized for creating an ecosystem, which is what you want from a package manager. You want a package manager that is focused first and foremost on enabling an ecosystem. That means people depending on other people. That means cumulative sort of network value coming out of the, the package management ecosystem. So the fact that you never have to intervene to fix a package is really important. It means that you can just continue to rely on packages and they can rely on packages. And at no point do you have to ping a maintainer or rip apart that code in order to figure out like, oh, hey, this is where this mismatch happened. Much like requests, um, the node module system and NPM co-evolved together. Like they, Isaac was working on both at the time and even took over running node for a while. And so um, when, when you talk about sort of like why NPM was successful, especially early on, a lot of that is actually also in the module system itself. And so the fact that you can rely on two different versions of a module is really important. That means that if you had an older one and somebody else has a newer one, I can just get both of those versions and I never have to go and resolve and fix some kind of issue. 
And these kinds of optimizations have other costs. Like, you know, if you're trying to bundle this up in the browser, you're going to end up with extra code. If you want to use this in the browser, you have to use a bundler. <laughs> like you can't just use this stuff without a huge tool chain in between. And a lot of those trade-offs, I think, are still the right ones. I think that if you're building a package manager, you need to optimize for ecosystem. But um, we're now in a place where the platform has caught up and the module system the platform provides is significantly different than the one that Node provides. And so there's now a, a new opportunity, I think, for newer ways of doing dependency management and packaging that are not NPM related. I mentioned Pika earlier. Yeah, that is something I've been looking at too. Pika is really interesting. So, um, so if all of your modules only use um, the new style module syntax, which means that they, they don't really work in Node, um, which is fine. <laughs> um, but if, you, if, you're, if you're using just that syntax, you can actually use Pika, which is like not really a compiler and bundler. It just like presents these in a way that you can import them directly into the browser. You don't need any of this tooling. I mean, like literally, I mean, you, you, you need some tooling to maybe download that package, but you don't need tooling to bundle it up. You don't need, uh, you know, an extra special dev server that's doing, you know, dynamic regeneration of all the code and everything like that. If a module changes, then its e-tag will change because the content changes. So you're, you're using HTTP again. There are some big performance drawbacks of this. Like if you rely on a thousand modules, then you're going to get a thousand HTTP requests. Um, so there are other performance optimizations that you need to layer on top of it to make it work better. But the fact that like you can use view source and without a source map or anything, see the actual file and, and it makes sense and it's real code, that's kind of amazing. Like, like this is, that's like a big, if you can collapse this giant tool chain that we have into something that simple, um, everything is so much easier to debug. There's so much less code code in between the code that you write and where it actually gets executed in the environment. And I think that it's, it's hard, you know, the, these tool chains are, are cyclical, right? Like we, we go through these cycles where we, we build up this huge, huge tool chains and all these frameworks. And then we go like, oh, okay. Like, like now my biggest frustration is the framework in the tool chain. Like, let's just throw all this away and start over and do something simpler now that the platform is caught up. And I think that it's hard to look at things today when you look at this huge stack of, of a framework like React and Webpack and Babel and just like unbelievable amounts of code and look at the changes that have happened in the web platform since those tool chains started. Like we now have a module system. <laughs> we now have async primitives, like async await in the browser. We have you know async generators. We have, like, um, we have an import function that will just do you know, dynamic importing after the fact that you're not always blocking initial execution. All of that, when you add it up, you, you go, okay, what would a new, new tool chain look like? What, what do we actually need of all of this if we're just doing something in a newer, more modern way? And so, uh, yeah, I think that like, this, is, this is the time. <laughs> this, is, this is the, like over the next year or two, we're going to start to see. And I don't know if it's going to be Pika. Like I'm not like putting all of my chips on, on that, but I think it'll be something like Pika. I think that, you know, that this change is, is significant enough. And I think that in, in some ways, there's always a tension between, okay, how much work do we do to make the whole ecosystem continue working? I mean, by the time that one of these things happens, there will be a million modules in NPM. Like, not an exaggeration, one million. Like, there are mm-hmm. already like 800,000, right? And it's growing pretty quickly. So by the time that we're, ta- that we're talking about seriously moving to a new thing, we're going to be literally talking about not using a million modules. <laughs> so there's always a tension between, okay, do we, do we start over and do the new thing or do we try as hard as we can to keep it? all of that stuff and, and port it over. Well, what, what about just 
using, I mean, like if, if you just automatically updated Git URLs for SHA sums that like match packages, if you just iterated over all 800 million, thousand, no. I mean, like, like it's, no. it, it would take, it would take, you know, a couple hours. But <laughs> yeah, really. No, they're not written for the new module system though. Like they're, they're not written for like they're written for nodes module system. So they're, they're not going to work. Or, or in some cases, they're actually written for a newer style module system that is only works actually inside of Webpack, <laughs> not just inside of the browser. So, like it's it's not going to work that way. You're still going to need the compile chain in between. I, I don't know. I mean, but, but why I, why not use Git for I, hosting rather than rather than so so I, I, I don't, I don't that's that's a bad like, idea. It's a bad like idea. The amount of caching that is involved <laughs> at MDM. Yeah. like it is. Yeah. Yeah. With Git, you get all the caching automatically. Like. No, you, no, 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 no. <laughs> no. No, 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 you don't. So what I actually work on now are, are newer content address data structures that use Merkle trees. So the, the data structures that I work in day to day now actually look a lot more like Git and have much better sort of syncing and caching semantics. But those aren't really surfaced um, in, in Git. So in, in Git, you get like one hash for the entire source tree, which means that if you change one thing, then the entire source tree has to be updated again. You can't actually... So, so if, if you're just using it in the way that you're talking about, where you're just caching it to that one identifier, internally inside of Git... When you do merges, when you move things around, it has this brilliant like Merkle tree syncing structure, but that's not exposed to you if you're just using it as like a, a dumb package registry. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's highly problematic. It would be better than zip though, wouldn't it? So it turns out, <laughs> I did another one of these tests the other day. It turns out that like we really underestimate how good gzip is. So if you, if you don't compress files, but you do deduplication using this algorithm called Rabin, which is what... So everyone who... Um, like Git internally and anybody who takes like a, a, a file that you think is just going to change um, iteratively and you want to chunk that file up in a way where you maximally deduplicate chunks between different versions of the file, you use this algorithm called Rabin. And it's, it's like pure magic. You just like apply it to a file. It was written, I think, for rsync. Um, but it, it, yeah, so it, it just knows like the smart way to look at boundaries and different characters and then chunk the file up that way. So if you chunk a file up that way and you have um, like literally hundreds of versions of the file, actually the test that I ran was on the request library. So every release of request I chunked up differently in the static file layer, you still end up with three times the amount of data as taking the entire file tree every time and gzipping it. Because gzip is really good. It turns out that like our compression libraries are incredibly good. <laughs> so sorry, <laughs> it turns out no. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Then the other question I wanted to ask, and then I'm done with my questions, I think, for now, was about import maps and how you think yep. that's going to affect Node. 
So I, I, I just started looking at this, so I, I haven't completely gotten my head around it. Uh, Miles Borens, I think, has been working on this a little bit, or at least advocating it, and he pointed me at it the other day. Yeah, no, I, I think that it's a really good idea. And I think that it, it solves a really interesting problem. Um, so we, we have something like that. Um, we, we solved this problem in a way in Node using package.json, but this adds um, a much better primitive that'll work in the browser. And I think that it, it certainly helps. This is going back a little bit, but in early discussions around um, how ES modules would be implemented in the browser, there were multiple specs for and, and approaches to what the API would look like in the browser for pulling in modules and how mutable it would be and how much you could change it and program it. Isaac Schluter, who, who built NPM, who now runs the NPM company, um, who built Node's module system, worked with them on one, um, oh God, what was it called? I'm, I'm like forgetting what it was actually named now though, but it was a much more dynamic way to do that so that you could, you could do something like Node's resolution algorithm, but implement it in pure JavaScript in the client. They ended up not going that way for a bunch of reasons, most of them kind of performance related and concerns about like, well, what happens when two people try to load up their module algorithm in the same browser context? Like how do you manage that? It's painful. Uh, so instead they, they went with something that was much more straightforward and now they've been trying to sort of add different features that we kind of lost in these more advanced um, APIs. And this is one of them. And, and I think that it's, it's definitely a good way to go. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, there were a lot of different threads that were pulling out there. So I don't, I don't know if I completely answered all of them or not. That is good for me and okay. all of my questions. And I'll stop <laughs> bogging the mic now. <laughs> One thing that I'm curious about is what of these things that we have talked about or maybe some of the things that we haven't talked about do developers need to understand in order to get the most out of Node? So even though you shouldn't use them, and I'm, I'm going to, like, I helped work, write streams. <laughs> I worked on a lot of the stream stuff. You shouldn't use streams. You should use async generators. But it's important to understand streams as a concept and understand when Node or a Node program is giving you a stream so that you can decide what to do with it, which I think you should actually just pipe it to a transform or a pass-through stream, uh, and then use an async generator on it. But it's really important to understand when something is a stream because it's a very different uh, value type than anything else that you're working with. First, I would start with just general JavaScript knowledge, actually. So like, if you know new modern JavaScript, so you're using async await, um, you know, you're using kind of class keyword stuff, if you get all of that, you can use any JavaScript library pretty effectively, I think. The main things to, that, that are very different in Node it, are the stream type and then how the module system works, how modules get, you know, how NPM works, how module installation works, that kind of stuff. Those are the, the main things that you really need to know, especially if you're just doing front-end stuff and, and messing around with plugins here and there. Those are the big ones that you really need to understand. I think that Node is still a very thin layer between you and the operating system. So a lot of Node's APIs and what it provides, like I could give you a list of like, you know, learn the file API or learn the socket API or whatever. The reality is those are pretty close to the metal in terms of what the operating system gives you. And so if you know other, if you know operating systems well or you know other platform languages, it's not that hard to pick those up. And if you don't know those, then the hard part about learning them is going to be learning what a POSIX operating system will give you and what operating systems in general offer you in terms of sockets and files and stuff like that. Those are the same constraints, I think, in, in most languages, especially any other language that does um, non-blocking operations. So Go and Rust and, and even a lot of modern Python, actually, they have newer, better async primitives. But yeah, I think that if you're, if you're just starting out, like learn JavaScript, learn new modern JavaScript, and then pick up Node from there. Find libraries that, that fit that model. When you see their readme, are they using sort of newer style syntax, that kind of stuff. 
I'll make a couple quick plugs. Uh, I think that you should use standard JS style just so, to not have that argument. Uh, <laughs> and uh, standard JS is, is, you know, has packages for every linter. So any linter that you ever want to use, you can really easily adopt standard style. And that just cuts down on like the amount of bike shedding and things that you're worrying about in terms of syntax. And um, once you're using a, a linter that has a good rule set like standard or, or any other really good rule set, those linters will also show you a lot of obvious errors early on. So you won't hit a lot of like, JavaScript has a lot of like loaded guns that they hand you and point them at your foot, right? So you can, you can do a lot of things in JavaScript that are bad and will mess up your program. And it may run once well and your test may run once well and then immediately when you have an application up, it'll break. So yeah, linters will fix a lot of that. So I, those are the things that I would point at when you're first learning JavaScript and first learning Node. Um, yeah, I think that the main thing with Node is to remember that there is a long history there. And a lot of the tutorials that you're going to find are using an older style of all of that stuff. So avoid them. Pick up the new stuff. I feel like that's the plague of JavaScript in general is 90% of the tutorials are wretchedly terrible. I think JavaScript is probably the hardest language to learn out of any because of the Wild West heritage. If you well, pick any other language first, you'll probably have a better experience. I don't know. I mean, you know, I was in the Ruby community for a long time. <laughs> I went and tried to learn how to do iOS development for a couple of years. They all have this problem, right? Where the tutorial doesn't have a date on it, doesn't have a language version on it or a framework version on it. And so you get in and you're trying to figure out why it's so flipping hard and why you're getting an error while you're trying to figure out what you're doing. And then it turns out that when you finally do figure out how old it is, you're going, oh, well, this is from four years ago, so no wonder. And so then you go find something, you know, you figure out what the current version is of the framework or language, and then you go and you find a tutorial for that, and all of a sudden it works a whole lot better. Yeah, like we all have that problem, but I think in JavaScript is especially bad because people don't even agree on what the language ought to be. Like there was no consistency on syntax or style. And even now, like it's beginning to look so much more like C sharp than JavaScript. Uh, I mean, like <laughs> I've been involved. <laughs> Here in, we go. I've been involved in some of those arguments and, and there are certainly, um, I mean, eight years ago they were trying to turn it into Python and, and now people are saying they're trying to turn it into C sharp. I think that there's a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that like, more people learn JavaScript every year than any other language. In fact, JavaScript is still basically doubling every year. So half the people in the JavaScript community learned it this year. So it may be difficult <laughs> for some of us, but often I find that JavaScript and, and Node are more difficult for people that are intermediate to advanced developers to learn than new developers. It's surprisingly easy for, for newer developers to pick it up. And I think that has to do with a, a big mismatch in how you approach learning it. Um, if you're trying to approach it from a bottoms up, like a fundamentals uh, on, all the way up perspective, which is what you tend to do when you're a more advanced developer, you're like, okay, what are the primitives here? And then how do I kind of stick them all together and move my way up the stack? JavaScript is a really hard language to learn because there's no consistency there. But if you're learning it from the top down, if you're saying, I, I have a task that I want to complete, or often there is already an application up and I need to do something to it, JavaScript's a pretty easy language to learn. The syntax is pretty simple. There's a lot more tooling and environments for you to use and sort of mull your way through. So like, you know, a, a browser is a live environment for you to use. The, the tools inside of the browser are 
better than you know almost any IDE that you have for other compiled languages. It's better than anything you have in, in Go or Rust to do to do debugging, um, and that's just like already installed in every computer in the world. When you look at the tool chains for for doing linting for doing the compile stuff, like you, you have just a much more advanced tool chain for debugging than anywhere. Like, you know, just this year, when I'm starting to see now, like somebody wrote a library somewhere where um, now when you hit an error in your program, they have, they will print to the console four lines around that error, point at it, and do syntax highlighting in your console, right? And we went from never seeing that to now every program that I use, I see that in. Like, tap, my test runner uses it, like, <laughs> the compiler uses it, everything. I think that like we really tend to underestimate like the uh, the evolution of the tooling and how good it is compared to other platforms just because of how many people are writing it. So so if I may though, so my my whole thing now is teaching beginners JavaScript mm-hmm. and all of the stuff you just described is incredibly non-trivial for at least the type of beginner that I interact with to set up. So like I agree with you, but that the tooling is amazing, but it's also really complicated and is one of the number one things my students cite as what gives them anxiety when they're trying to learn modern JavaScript. It's like, why can't I just open a text editor in a browser and start coding stuff? Like, especially people who did HTML or CSS first and then they're trying to pick up JavaScript. Like, the, all the stuff around it is really overwhelming. Um, yeah, I think yeah. modern JavaScript is certainly a hell of a lot easier to pick up than five or six years ago when we were still fighting the like IE versus Firefox versus Chrome kind of wars. But like, yeah, I, I don't think I'd go so far to say it's, it's, it's easy. Well, the, the browser tools are, are incredible. Like, I mean, and... I, I agree with that. Right? Oh, for I think sure. That, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I agree that like, so Webpack and the entire compile chain is a big wrench in all of this, right? Because it means that, no, I can't just pop open the tools now and just run stuff. Because... Like my application does not run in the environment, like the environment that I'm just typing things in in that console. Like there is this this huge difference, and the compile chain like really changes things, right? People all the time that have been doing like you know some kind of framework like React or something for years now, right? And they're pretty good at it, and they still just never think to like, okay, well, like I'm running this thing, and I need to just get at this object in the console. Like how, like where where do I get that? Like they're trying to like you know pass it off to some component and then like attach it to some DOM element, and I'm like it's the window, just attach it to the window object as some variable and then you can pull it in the console it's that easy because like they they never went and just learned the basic platform stuff like the vanilla js that you're talking about that said it's incredible what they've been able to get done without doing that like they they learned it from they took a different approach to learning it they they just wanted to build applications and they learned the framework on the way down and they're missing a bunch of pieces and and they struggle with that but also like it, it's always surprising to me how much they're able to get done I think also we, we, we forget, like we don't even talk about, like we don't even consider them web developers anymore or JavaScript developers, but there are all these people that have like some PHP framework that they're using that spits out a bunch of stuff. And inside of that is a bunch of JavaScript that they have to manipulate on like a weekly basis. And so they, they drill into that. And we used to like have them at web conferences, right? Like when the Ajax experience started, it was mostly like people that did PHP and were like learning jQuery so that they could like make their PHP thing better. <laughs> like that, that's what they were doing. And now that we don't really consider them part of the equation when we say like JavaScript developer, but that's still a huge constituency. Like people that are just making stuff happen on the web like that are a huge, huge constituency. And a lot of the growth that we see in tool chains 
like is from those people. Like those people are now adopting tool chains like React inside of those um, PHP frameworks. So yeah, I mean, like I, I think you know, if you want to sit down and say like I want to become a JavaScript developer and I want to be an engineer and I want to have a career in engineering, then you're going to approach learning in a very different way. You're going to learn it from the ground up. You're going to learn the fundamentals on up, and that is much harder in JavaScript than other languages. It, it does not have a, a clean break. Um, when, like Python to Python 3 when we added new syntax. It does not have a clean history. If you try to Google how to do stuff on the web and you're not using jQuery, you're mostly going to get answers that just tell you how to do something in jQuery and it's really frustrating. That's why I use Vanilla.js <laughs> with all my stuff. It's literally just a differentiator for Google. Yeah. <laughs> so so what, I'm, what I'm hearing is JavaScript's the new PHP <laughs> and uh, Stack Overflow driven development has never been easier from my console. <laughs> That's 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 the node basics right there. PHP your way to node with the with the Chrome console. Got it. I mean, I, I just want to jump in here with with a few other things. I mean, one thing that I ran into when I was learning JavaScript, like really learning it, not when I was okay. Well, I'm going to plug in jQuery here, 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 and here, and manipulate the DOM, and I'm just going to ignore what JavaScript actually does. Yeah, it wasn't so much that that I was trying to understand it from the ground up. It was just that there were some things in it that, you know, speaking of this inconsistency, that I expected to work differently because they worked differently in the other environment I was working in. And so, you know, that, that was what would throw me off is that the fundamentals were different and that they, weren't, they were different in ways that weren't always things that I could draw a straight line to in every case. And that's, that's what screwed me up. And so then when I got into it and I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to learn JavaScript for JavaScript. Then it became, oh, okay. So this just got, it thinks about these things differently. But yeah, there really weren't any consistent internals. I just had to get used to the way that some of these things work that were different from what I was used to. But what are the basics of Node.js then? <laughs> so, so coming back to the cyclical nature here, I remember the same, people said the same thing about jQuery 12 years ago, right? They were like, these people aren't learning JavaScript. They're not learning the web. They're just learning jQuery. <laughs> and they, yeah, I was learning how to do a freaking yeah, yeah. job. And they don't know where the trade-off is. And it's the same thing now with React and these other tools. And, and I think that it will, again, come back around that the platform is caught up. And, you know, vanilla JS will be a thing again. And people will be really, it'll probably call it modern JS to, to, to <laughs> distinguish. But I think I've already seen people kind of using that. Yeah, and I think that it'll come Oh, back. there goes my SEO. <laughs> but I, I want I, chocolate chip cookie dough. Uh, <laughs> Just saying. Ben, ben and JS's. There we go. C yeah. sharp script. Yeah. C sharp script. Mm-hmm. And then in five years, you know, there'll be a new tool that everybody gets really into and, and we'll start all over again. Hey, AJ, you joked but, about JavaScript being the new PHP with like copy paste stack overflow dev. Like that's that, true. That is simultaneously <laughs> the best and worst thing about both PHP and JavaScript. It's really low barrier of entry for people who want to hack their way into it, mm-hmm. but also results in some really badly built things. You have to take with the good with the bad if you want to have that barrier to entry be, be low. Yeah, yeah, one other thing I want to throw at you guys is just that, you know, Michael mentioned that uh, like Webpack and things like that turn out to be the barrier for a lot of people. But for me, that's just part of the larger barrier that people run into. And that is just getting an environment set up that will run in the first place. And so it's not just Webpack. It's, okay, well, I want to build an app with Express and React and this and that and the other. And so then I have to make sure I have an up-to-date version of, of Node. I have to make sure I have an up-to-date version of NPM. And then I have to make sure I'm pulling in the right versions of the, the packages that I need. And 
you know, back to one of the other things we talked about, you know, I've got a tutorial that's telling me to install out of date things, or I have the latest version of Node that isn't compatible with the version of whatever that they're telling me to use. And then you get into these other gray areas where I'm not super familiar with command line and a lot of the tutorials on how to install Node in the first place tell you to use the command line, right? And use something like Homebrew or Apt or, you know, whatever. And if you're on Windows, then you go down, download some installer and then you've got to figure out where it landed and what it's doing and where the executables are and how that all works. And so what, what it really comes down to is Node does this better than a lot of other languages and systems. One example that I'm very familiar with is Ruby on Windows, just as is pain. But the flip side is, is that it's still painful. You know, it, there's yeah. still friction there because if you're not familiar with how these things work, you know, Michael mentioned that it's close to the, the metal. And so if you don't understand the metal, you're going to have some growing pains as you learn how this stuff goes together. And so you can't just install JavaScript, install Node, and just be off to the races. It, it doesn't quite line up that way. So one thing I'll say too that, that's important here, um, because we, so when we started Node School, um, which is like a bunch of tutorials and also sort of local meetups for people to learn Node, when we started doing the in-person ones, we noticed that people were having huge issues just getting it installed and configured yeah. properly. We've been able to fix a lot of those problems, but only in the install path that you flow down if you go to nodejs.org. So if you go to nodejs.org and you say install this and then you'll see different options for, for installing it, potentially even tutorials if you get into some of the advanced stuff. If you follow that, things will get set up properly. Do not use Homebrew. Do not use, like most system uh, installers, mo most system installers will mess up the permissions on NPM. And then it's a lot of like manual work to go in and try to fix that. And, after and give you a 10-year-old version yeah, yeah. Well, that's like, yeah. I don't want to get into the Debian community. <laughs> the whole thing. There, there are stable unless it's moldy. There are certain people uh, who mostly have really old gray beards, and they just fundamentally believe that something that is old is more stable and more secure, even when all of the people that build it are telling them that's not true, and they insist that they will ship old versions because the oh, new I, thing is is not stable. When, when it when there's it comes no reason programming, I can never use anything like Brew or App. Like I always go to the website, no matter which language it is. I try to just go to the website and get it because it's way better story. Yeah. I mean, Homebrew, to their credit, is doing a better job than most Debian releases, but it, it, you still run into these permission issues. And well, just the, 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 node, the Node project's ability to fix these problems is, is pretty close to zero because it's very difficult to work with a lot of these package managers and just the, the bandwidth isn't there. And so we've been able to fix it in the standard install path. Also, you, you mentioned Windows. So Node works better on Windows than most modern platforms. And th that was very intentional. Like um, we, like the project wanted it to work well on Windows early on. Microsoft invested early on and actually put in money and resources into making it good in Windows. And so it's just much better. And a lot of that was that Microsoft themselves did not want to have a repeat of what happened with PHP, where PHP has just never felt nice on Windows. They really wanted it to be like a first-class citizen and, and use a lot of their operating system, the advances that had happened in their operating system around non-blocking IO. So yeah, that like... That's, and also, we, we got a huge number of users from that. I mean, I think still more than half of Node's users are on Windows. We, when, as sort of .NET uh, declined in, in growth, uh, we saw a noticeable uptick. Um, it's also one of the reasons why we're, we're overly represented, actually, on Stack Overflow. 
because Stack Overflow is, is a pretty Microsoft heavy audience. One of the first communities they brought in was a .NET audience. So, Yeah, I, I definitely hear you there. I think one of the issues you have with the standard install path that you're talking about, though, is that like on Windows, you just run the installer. I think on Mac, you mm-hmm. can as well. Mm-hmm. I haven't installed Node in a while, and now I just tell it to update, and it just updates. But the, the thing there is that like for Ruby or PHP or a lot of these other systems, if you want to install something, you go to the command line first. And mm-hmm. so that's, I think, why people wind up starting with Homebrew if they've got experience in some other system is because that, you know, that's where you start. And so anyway, it's, it's really interesting just kind of see where we end up with this. Yeah, and I mean, so we we also so on like we have um, like Debian packages like set up, so you can use apt. You just need to like make sure that you pull from this particular app server in order to get the right thing, and then that will work really well for you. Um, we also have like uh, the Node project releases official Docker um, images as well. So if you're doing anything with Docker, you can literally just say like you know use Node colon ten or whatever, and it'll be fine. Yeah, so that gets the install out of the way of using yeah. Node and Node Basics. Once you, once you get Node, uh, you'll have NPM. NPM is what you'll use to install packages um, and potentially publish packages if that's something that you want to do. NPM is really well documented, um, has every feature ever, <laughs> apparently. And yeah, and the, their registry has a really nice website for you to search for packages when you're looking for you know, a package that does something if you need a particular algorithm or whatnot. Cool. There we go. Those thems the basics. Nice. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc., VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 40 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash JavaScript Jabber. AJ was kind of doing the, the running of the show, and he had to jump out for a meeting. So, so I'll, I'll take us into picks. Actually, I'm going to make Chris take us into picks. All right, happy to do so. So I have uh, I have two this week. Over the last, actually, over the last couple of years, I've tried to move off of Chrome and onto Firefox as my development, like primary browser, multiple times, and I always find myself coming back to Chrome. But I was going to say half of our users just went, "Why?" Yeah. Well, so I finally like officially made the jump. I don't know how much of it was because Firefox has gotten like that much better over the last couple of years and how much of it was like just sheer, um, sheer willpower. But um, like the long and short of it is I've, um, there's a couple of things for me. The first is Google just controls so much of the web and has access to so much of kind of what we look at and what we search for, et cetera. And something about being additional fuel for their massive advertising engine just kind of sat wrong with me. the other big thing, though, was with the announcement of Edge also moving over to, you know, Blink as the rendering engine. And Kit slash Blink becoming kind of the, um, the primary thing on the web. I felt like it was really important to support Firefox, make sure that, like, their work continues to have a place in the modern web. 
And I'm with you. I love WebKit. I love the console debugger in Chrome. I think it, it actually does a better job than Firefox. But there's so many really nice things about Firefox. Um, in particular, I found that at least on my machine, it's actually faster to boot up and faster to load pages now than Chrome is. Thanks I don't know how much of that has to do with my kind of like unique kind of plug-in extension setup or whatever. But um, basically, this is just kind of a, a call to folks that if you haven't tried Firefox in a while, give it a shot. Um, you may be pleasantly surprised. You may hate it, and that's okay. I certainly don't really care what people use as their browser, but um, I was really pleasantly surprised after not using it for like eight or nine years other than for periodic you know, browser testing, things like that. Second, in uh, end of September, early October this year, I am going to be speaking at Artifact Conference um, out in Austin, Texas about a topic called the Lean Web. So basically all of the stuff you hear me complain about here on the show. I think I mentioned this last week too, but I just wanted to kind of redrop it because the conference is really that good. Um, it has ruined all other conferences for me. It's kind of the gold standard in my mind. Um, so you should definitely come check it out. Even if you just want to come there and tell me how much you suck and you're or I suck rather and you're sick of hearing my voice on the show. So that's it for me this week. Nice. Yeah, the the whole edge move over that that's just exciting stuff. I need to see if I can line someone up to talk to about that. Amy, what are your picks? I do have some. So people probably know this from stuff I've picked in the past or just knowing me personally, but I kind of have like a mild obsession with um like neuroscience and the brain. So this one is it's called A Magician Explains Why We See What's Not There. And I love this kind of stuff. So that's going to be my first pick. And the other one, I have picked something similar to this in the past. But um, I don't know. I think this blog post got a lot of attention a couple of weeks ago. And um, I think it's worth calling out again. And it's basically the premise is as engineers, we can either like spend our time writing tons and tons and tons of code or we can kind of be more deliberate about it like you can kind of just be a factory and pump stuff out or you can be more deliberate about it and you know I don't know the blog post just kind of talks about how some people you know view it more as a craft and things like that so it's based on I guess this art teacher gives people like again this is what I talked about I think like a year ago this art teacher um, gives people like the job to make a bunch of um, pottery and he has like one group and they're only allowed to make one, but they have to, and they measure like what it looks like at the end. And then this other group just like pumps out as many as they can. And they measure like the very last one and the quality of it. And the group that like spent time on just one of them, the quality of that one was better. So anyways, uh, that's going to be it for me this week. I guess I'm up. <laughs> yeah, <come on. laughs> So, so what I've been working on for the last year or so, um, and really like sort of in the background for like 10 years, is what a sort of more peer-to-peer decentralized web would look like. And, you know, that started with some CouchDB stuff that I did a long time ago. And it's, it's changed quite a bit. We have new primitives in what we're calling kind of content addressing that allow a, just a much different, a very different way to think about web development and to think about how we use the web for not just um, websites, but also the data behind them and making that whole platform kind of come together. So I gave a talk at Cascadia on this that's like a pretty good introduction. Um, so if you just search for my name in Cascadia.js, you'll find it, but also um, I'm sure there'll be a link in the show notes. I just put it in the chat. And it's just about you know what the future of the web looks like, the, the challenges that we're dealing with, the kinds of like problems that we see in Twitter and Facebook are really like the, the reason that we can't solve them as a community 
is because they are all built the same way. And we have not yet um, upgraded the web to be able to deal with, to, to even build applications in a different way. So if you wanted to build a social media app tomorrow that didn't suffer from a lot of the same problems of Facebook and Twitter, you actually can't. You just don't have those primitives yet. Uh, so this is the kind of stuff that we're working on. And uh, yeah, and then keeping in keeping with the um, the browser theme, I'm going to plug a browser too. I'm going to plug Brave because uh, Brave is awesome. And uh, so Brave, um, un- <laughs> under the hood, Bra- Brave <laughs> does use Chromium, um, but Brave is going like an extra couple miles in terms of protecting your privacy. It's much, much more aggressive than just any other browser uh, in terms of how much it will block uh, in, in in what ways that it will block not just ads but also different tracking and fingerprinting and stuff like that. So it's we need great. to have an episode on this because I think Brave is a really shady browser, and I'd love to talk about it more. <laughs> shady, it's not shady. It's not the time, but <laughs> it is not shady browser. Browser wars. I mean, Michael so you Rogers can have Brendan on. So Brendan Ike, uh, who who invented JavaScript, is is the CEO of Brave. You could have him on. He can it, actually. Um, I used to have a podcast uh, with Nadia Eggball where we talked about open source sustainability. It's called uh, Request for Commits. We did an episode with Brendan Eich that was really about how browsers have been funded and the sort of the evolution of browsers. Um, so if you're interested in that kind of topic and where browsers came from and how, and how much money it costs really to do a browser 10 years ago and today, um, I would definitely check that out. It's a really cool episode. Yeah, there you go. Nice. Is that podcast still running? Uh, no, no, we did two seasons. Um, we, we did it differently. It wasn't like an ongoing. We, we had right. two seasons of like stuff that we really wanted to talk about. And then after that, we were like, eh, we're... We're sort of done talking about this topic, and so um, Nadia has done um, a new podcast with with Henry Zhu um, called um, uh, Hope and Source. Hope and Source. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and it was released like Netflix style, like just the whole like a whole bunch of episodes at once, and then like no more basically. But it's it's about sort of the intersection of um, like faith and religion and open source, and it's very interesting because Nadia is not religious at all, and and uh, Henry is, and they, they yeah, it's it's a phenomenal podcast actually. Like you should definitely listen to that one as well. But yeah, the um, the uh, request for commits we did a couple seasons. Every episode was just going really deep with somebody on the challenges of being an open source maintainer and what open source sustainability looks like. So makes sense. Yeah, we are starting an open source sustainability podcast on DevChat.tv. I'm talking to the bunch of people that are going to be involved in that next Monday, and we'll finalize the recording schedule and start rolling with that. So cool, should awesome. be fun. Awesome. All right. Well. I guess I have a couple of picks I'm going to throw out here. First of all, I think I've mentioned a few times on the show, I'm working on a system called PodWrench. If you're doing podcasts, it's a podcast management platform. But the real crux of it is for me is that a lot of content creators get into podcasting and then they get back out because producing audio is kind of a pain. The other thing is, is that they have to spend a bunch of time you know, doing that stuff instead of just creating content. And so what I'm trying to do is create a platform where you essentially... Uh, we find your sponsors, uh, we pay your production team, or we give you the money and you can pay your production team. And then you just show up and record. And uh, you know the tool does all the management stuff as far as when you upload the file, it lets the editor know when the editor's done, it lets the show notes folks know, when the show notes folks schedule stuff, it lets you know, lets your guests know, lets your host know when to show up, You know, gives intros to all of your hosts and guests, all that kind of stuff. You know, so it just makes it so that you can just show up and talk about the stuff you want to talk about. And then it does the rest of everything else for you and reminds you what you need to bring up on the show to pay the bills. So anyway, it's at podwrench.com. And uh, I am going to be looking for beta testers. This show's like four or five weeks ahead. So I will definitely be looking when this episode comes out. So uh, definitely go check that out. And then 
yeah, I think we should do a Browser Wars episode, but we'll we'll dive into that later. But yeah, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks for coming, Michael. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, we will uh, wrap this up and we'll be back next week. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.